Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Alicia Wanless. Yes, she is a PhD researcher at King's College in London right now, and she is studying um, the frameworks for understanding the information environment. So a lot of work in disinformation, misinformation, influence operations. In fact, that's one of the things we touch on is we, no one can seem to agree on the nomenclature for these events. We really enjoyed speaking with her. She's super smart, super sharp, and gives a really thoughtful analysis to all of these big problems we're trying to think through. Yes, and uh, definitely listen all the way to the end because we get into a discussion about leeches. I'll leave it at that. Without further ado, Alicia Wanless. Hello? Hello, Alicia. This is George with Safeguard Cyber. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? All right. I, uh, we also have here Ashley Stone. Hi there. Hi, Ashley. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, all right. So let's start out with uh, what led you to the PhD track that you are on studying um, information warfare, information operations, and propaganda at King's College? Uh, a few things. One is that in researching how information is used to influence audiences, I became very frustrated with a lack of an overarching theory of information that could explain the information environment. We seem to have a lot of research on this topic that's focused on case studies, but mm -hmm. they're not really put into context. So you get a lot of case studies that would look at the activity of, say, the Internet Research Agency on Twitter, for example. But that activity is actually a really small part of the overall activity occurring within an information environment. Right. And yet a lot is being inferred from that small piece of the puzzle. So this leaves a pretty big conceptual gap that I think is leading to some pretty bad decision making in democracies about how to deal with things like influence operations. Right. It feels uh, always like a piecemeal or kind of duct taped approach to these. What, you know, if you're thinking about it as case studies, you're applying solutions to like individual situations rather than, you know, unified theory of, you know, misinformation. Exactly. Right. Like we took down 300 bots. Is right. it really a solution? Exactly. Right. So, and a lot of the solutions that are coming up tend to be focused very much at the content level or policing content, which is next to impossible when you're looking at billions of pieces of content. And even worse, when a lot of the terms that we have to describe these things are fundamentally difficult, even if you're dealing with a single piece of content. So trying to discern fact from fiction on political opinion, or if you're defining line is intent. You may never know why somebody actually shared something. So these are extremely problematic concepts that kind of went very much into weeds that we can't really measure. And we don't have this general overarching, I guess, understanding of what the information environment really is. Yes. And prior to starting on the PhD track, did you, were you working in this space uh, in your previous studies or did you, or in an occupation or did this just catch fire or is it a natural evolution of where you'd been before? It's huh. uh, <laughs> a good answer. I we can have, leave it at that. <laughs> I have a very patchworked career behind me. Um, I majored in Russian at starting the year after the economy collapsed there. So nobody was really interested in Russia and our programs in Canada had been decimated. So I was mm. one of the first majors and like the only one in seven years 
And I was always interested in things leaders use to manipulate or lead the masses, right? So that would be language engineering or propaganda, sometimes the use of intelligence services. Um, and there wasn't a lot of work, as you can imagine, when mm-hmm. I graduated in the early 2000s. Uh, so I ended up working as an ICT uh, industry analyst. So I looked at things like identity, identity-based security measures. Um, I bounced around into foreign affairs for a little bit and worked on parliament uh, and ultimately ended up coming out and working in strategic communications as a practitioner. So I ran campaigns. Mm. And then um, about five or six years ago, I really was kind of leaning back towards my passion and interest in researching uh, propaganda and persuasion and started looking at the emerging media outlets that were coming out. So things like RT, AJ+, but even Fox and how they were engaging differently with uh, Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. So pages, pages. Um, one of my hypotheses at that time was that if those outlets could actually engage with target audiences in a meaningful way, like disenfranchised audiences in, say, the U.S., then that could have some potential implications. Uh, And then I started researching the 2016 election quite early on with some research partners at Ryerson uh, looking at the primary and then started doing some additional work because that research was indicating to me that the real action wasn't happening on official campaign pages, but through community-based pages. And lo and behold, that was really what was going on. So it's been a kind of natural leading to this eventually, but really I got lucky because for the first 15 years of my career, (laughs) nobody really cared about propaganda or Russia for that matter. Well, yes, the (laughs) historical pendulum always swings back. Um, Well, I actually was going to ask this question later, but you, you bring it up in what you were saying about a lack of a conceptual framework. And I think something that we've also confronted, uh, when talking with some of our other guests, um, uh, and I think Brene de Resta brought this up also, was kind of the lack of an agreed-upon nomenclature. You know, we say propaganda, disinformation, information warfare, influence operations, coordinated inauthenticity, <laughs> which is my favorite or least favorite, depending on the day. Um, so are you beginning to see, at least at the research level, any consensus on what to to name the information space or how to name these um, events or phenomena that we're seeing? No. And it is an endless source of frustration for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess that's that I, when you're in it, right. When we're in the middle of it, it's maybe harder to define right. the times. Uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, these problems are not necessarily new. Uh, information has been used to influence audiences throughout history. Um, but we have this tendency to want to think that the latest technological change somehow has shifted everything so immensely that we can't even get a grasp on it. Um, I think moreover, liberal democracies have a very awkward relationship with influence and persuasion because of how we derive our legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And that has really kept us from tackling this problem head on. Right. Okay. Yeah. Can you describe your interests in the way humans shape and are shaped by a changing information space? (laughs) Um, 
I think basically what it comes down to is that I'm interested in how people are manipulated and led. And that's a pretty longstanding fascination. As a kid, the Second World War really stood out. And mm-hmm. I wondered how people could be mobilized to hate so catastrophically or be convinced to lay down their lives en masse for a bigger cause. Um, these days, with an increasingly complex information environment, I am mostly just interested in trying to make sense of what's happening and find some sort of systemic approach to analyzing the space. Again, I keep coming back to that. I've thrown myself into a PhD because of the lack of this. Uh, I don't know if it will result in contributing to uh, a better foundation for studying and analyzing it, but um, I'm going to try. Well, yes, and we applaud those efforts. I was just telling Ashley um, before we got on that I had done a paper in high school for a Cold War class on the different methods of propaganda to mobilize U.S. Um, war effort against the Japanese and the Germans in World War II. And uh, I think I started out that project kind of making certain assumptions, my family being Japanese, that was going to be like racist caricature and stuff like that. But what was really interesting, which was less obvious, is that you they couldn't really draw Germans differently in racist cartoons. But what they did was there was a very concerted effort to label Germans as an inherently violent people. Um, and I think that was also interesting to me that, you know, they were just trying to figure out how do I get everyone in this country to care about this war effort? And then, you know, basically, I guess, to be suspicious of their neighbors who have German last names. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, that's, uh, that is, does take us full circle essentially to today in terms of how, those patterns of uh, language are being orchestrated. It feels a little bit more decentralized, and I think we'll get into that later when we talk about your upcoming chapter on on the amplification effects rather than the sender-receiver dynamic. Um, but I, I did want to bring up uh, something more specific. So I, when we were going through your Twitter feed for question ideas, I, I did notice that you had uh, retweeted something that Thomas Ridd posted a couple of weeks ago, which was, he brought up the subject of what he called the second order effects of uh, information operations on Twitter. And I was hoping that for our listeners, you might be able to elaborate on some of the second order effects we might be currently living through from, you know, the 2016 uh, operation. I mean, really maybe started in 2015 and we've just, we're like, we're living in the tide and uh, just trying to see if you could help us understand the, the longer tail effects of that. In general, I think that's a little bit difficult to say, mostly because there seems to be a lot of speculation going around, but little by way of being able to measure the effect of these campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of what a first order effect, it's really the expected direct result of an activity. So I need to caveat here that to know the desired effect of an activity, one would also need to know who's behind it and why. Correct. And these <laughs> points might not ever be known when analyzing an influence operation, particularly a covert one. Mm -hmm. So if we just play this kind of simply the way that the normal narrative has been going around, in the case of the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, the assumption is that their direct campaign was to influence uh, American voters on social media such that it might change their behavior. So, for example, to discourage votes for Clinton. Now, that would be a first order effect Mm -hmm. if they succeeded, which I'm not sure there's been great measurement to prove that they have. 
Now, that activity, once it's discovered by, say, media or opposition politicians, in this case, Democrats, is then taken up and it's given exponentially more coverage and weight than the activity itself could have ever hoped on its own. And then this, in turn, is driving some of the increased regulation, calls for increased regulation on political speech and of tech companies. And that is an example of a second order effect, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the direct thing that's happening, but the but what happens as a as a result of the first. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. I think that's where um, we had read this uh, paper. Who I need to, I just need to get better about having that to hand. But it's a paper out of the U.S. Army War College that was talking about how these operations tear at the connective tissue, which is civil society. It's the thing that binds the military, the government, and the and the public together. And it's just now that we're constantly debating our own institutions that we're calling into question whether we can trust you know it's that level of chaos that is a is maybe the long-term desired effect of of destabilizing an adversary um but yeah that's a that's a good point maybe i think actually we do a lot of this damage ourselves mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily need to be provoked into doing it. And this yeah, has right. been kind of the problem is the politicization of, of much of this was already part of the American fabric um, in the last 30 or 40 years. And if, if, if a not very well run right. campaign that was easy to discover uh, is enough to, you know, like that Tinder, that's, that's saying a lot about the state of, of American democracy to begin. Yes. So we know that America has seen some of these uh, effects, but they're actually global operations. And you've noted that Canada is not immune to election interference. So in the run up to the country's recent elections, had you seen any evidence of influence operations, either external or domestic actors? So I think what I said in the past was that we aren't really immune to the American political condition. Mm, um, okay. We tend to be a little bit smug up in Canada that we won't <laughs> catch the same cold that really embodied the U.S. 2016 election. Um, that's not really the case. Um, also, I would also I would add here that I tend to take a pretty broad view of, of influence operations. So these are the organized attempts to influence the information environment for a specific aim. Mm -hmm. um, so that includes political campaigning. And one of the things that I'd found looking at the 2016 U.S. election was a form of participatory propaganda whereby actors who were supporting Trump, they ran campaigns that appeared to be community based or grassroots uh, to engage voters in an attempt to get authentic users to pick up and share this kind of propagandistic messaging. And from what I can tell, um, most of the pages that we analyzed back in 2016 were actually domestic. They were American. They're still up. Mm -hmm. Now, this is definitely a model that was adopted quickly in Canada. We saw these types of pages emerging um, on Facebook as early as 2017. We did a study just on the Canadian landscape to see what was happening. And those pages were definitely emerging on the right of the political spectrum. And then in response to it, the left started creating their own campaigns that mirrored this. Um, so some of these pages like Ontario Proud and North 99 were very active in the 2018 Ontario election and also our recent election. Uh, and they really outstripped engagement by users um, compared to the official party pages, which I find fascinating. And all of these pages were domestic and they were set up by former political staffers, but run as these third party community pages. And that tends to be the activity that we see most. Now, there's other things that happen that can be probably derived from foreign interference, um, you know, 
they've seen in Australia, um, China's use of WeChat to try to influence Chinese diaspora in mm-hmm. elections. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. Um, and what strikes us the most is, you know, with the playbook essentially out in the open, uh, it gets more and more difficult to draw really hard lines of attribution. So as an example, we had done some research into recent elections in the EU, not the EU elections, which we did, but like country specific elections. And we would see a lot of domestic actors. And I think um, when journalists came to us, they really wanted to hammer home, like, is this Russia? And we were trying to say, well, that's not really the point, right? The point is that they've changed and shaped or distorted, depending on how you phrase it, the information landscape in such a way that they've emboldened uh, domestic uh, actors in these countries to do the same things, to stand up third-party pages, to uh, buy ads and do all that stuff. So what... They were doing it already. Right. I mean, we, we, we just didn't either study it or see it. I, I don't know. I mean, I was finding the same thing on domestic pages in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. Um, these campaigns are not new. And I mean, in many ways, the, the tactics that are adopted by the IRA came straight from Western marketing playbooks. Yes. That's one of our, or one of the favorite things I've heard described of how influence operations are carried out is that it's a sophisticated marketing agency. And we both come from a an ag- marketing agency background, and it makes sense. It's a really yeah. nice way to explain how operations work. I would also argue that having run campaigns, legitimate campaigns, um, <laughs> that I wouldn't say that the Russians were particularly, that the IRA was particularly savvy. Indeed, uh, quite clumsy in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually, so something that you said ignited something in my brain, which is like my armchair psychological analysis is like maybe the third party pages have more participation than the official pages because end users feel like they're a part of something rather than being lectured at or, you know, hand raising in support of something. They feel like they're actively involved in something. And I think this ties directly into your upcoming chapter, which is called the audience is the amplifier. Um, and it's talking about the participatory role uh, that new technologies give to propaganda. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about that chapter, and then and then we'll dig in with some some more detailed questions. Yeah. So that chapter is um, it outlines a model of participatory propaganda, which can basically be broken down into seven steps, and that's what the propagandist does. So uh, one is that they conduct targeted audience analysis to understand what provokes that group into action. Then they create provocative content based on those insights. So that might be like biased news, memes, or using sensational hacks and leaks. Um, then dumping that content into existing online communities where those targeted audiences are already consuming information. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that, encouraging those communities to take action. So sharing this content, signing petitions, lending their accounts, trolling dissenters. Uh, it used to be, although that's getting harder, uh, that content would be boosted by manipulating online algorithms such as news feeds and search returns with the ultimate aim of winning still traditional media coverage. That can't be stressed enough. The the aim to launder information into major hubs and networks like media and politicians is still key. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you used to be able to get that kind of con that coverage by sometimes just trending on Twitter, uh, but also staging scandals to win media coverage. And in some countries like the U.S., where you have a more diverse information ecosystem, this can also mean having a sort of symbiotic relationship with some media outlets like Fox does with Trump. Right. Um, and then the last thing here is that these campaigns then are constantly monitored, reviewed, adapted, and then repeated. So this is a perpetual campaign model. It never ends. Now, what we did in that chapter was through that lens, looked at the 2018 Ontario election specifically, um, and to analyze how users were actually engaging with those types of propagandistic um campaigns. And if there was a difference in terms of the engagement that, say, community-based pages like uh, North 99 and Ontario um, Proud were getting from followers. And in fact, they were getting more positive engagement, uh, more engagement in general. They were getting more shares. It seemed that the people who were sharing these things tended to be um, real accounts as well. Mm -hmm. And um, and they really believed what they were doing, right? It struck a chord with whatever they were saying. Now, I would argue that, and this is a guess more than anything, um, that the reason why people engage with these more is not so much that they feel a part of something, but I think that they really do believe these pages, these campaigns to be more authentic, right? right? So they trust them more than they would trust the political party who um, is you know, perhaps seen as being already tainted yeah is there um perhaps that authenticity or that perception of authenticity is uh reinforced because it appears to give them a voice so for example if i am an end user and i have shared a lot of stuff and the page you know reshares my stuff then i i just feel a deeper human connection because I feel validated at the individual level rather than, um, you know, being grouped into a set of party members or, or voting block. Let's it's like the thing that I made today got reshared by this organization that I identify with. It, it feels more, I just more recognition, right? It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm just more valuable to them. That's definitely possible. I mean, in looking at the thousands of pages right. that were supporting Trump in the in the 20, uh, 2016 election, there was definitely um, a reciprocation of people creating kind of memes and visual posts that were then being shared in groups or by these pages. Uh, so there could be that validation happening. Mm -hmm. um, I think these pages that purport to be community-based also don't appear to be organizations to the end user. They, right. I think there's a lot of taking it at face value that it's community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that also just speaks to a very not great degree of savviness for understanding how the information environment works and how information is put in front of us. I mean, for the average person, it's next to impossible. They will have very little understanding of what it means. Right. So can you explain uh, from the perspective of an average user, how amplification works and really why it matters? Who amplification. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how I'd answer that one. Um, so, I mean, amplification is essentially just the 
making louder of something, right? So in the digital space, that is essentially repeating it. But then again, I would come back to this idea that really the ultimate thing is to get media coverage or to get an influencer like a politician to take something up. That's um, That ultimately gets you the biggest win in terms of exposure. Um, so that's pretty much how amplification works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And then... I think what I'm trying to get at is for the average user or person, when they think about content that's being amplified, how do you explain the impact or measure the impact of um, propaganda or content being amplified to them? Yeah. So uh, impact is a very difficult word here because there really is currently very little by way of measurement of effect, especially of covert influence operations. Um, as a result, there isn't much I can say either to an expert or a layperson on that um, because we really don't know. Uh, more generally, though, I've tried to share a view that on a daily basis, we are all inundated with information. And much of that information is positioned in such a way so as to provoke a response in us. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is be more careful about what we consume and how we choose to react to it. Um, I think it would be wise for most of us to start questioning why is this content getting such a rise out of me? Who posted it? Why did they post this? What is it that they want for me? Uh, I think the best I can hope for at this point is that we might experience a trickle in terms of people stopping to think about content and sources before sharing. Yes. And I've, I've said this uh, on the podcast before, but I've, I have friends who will come up to me and they'll either show me on their phone or they'll share it directly through text message and it'll be some incendiary tweet or Facebook post or Instagram, what have you. And they'll be like, can you believe that there are people, there are other Americans who believe this stuff? And I have to, I was like, whoa, slow up. <laughs> like there is a statistically significant chance that that is not real or it has been designed to make you as angry as you feel right now, right? That's like, and I think they, my friends take a pause there because I I think they hear the news about disinformation or influence operations on the local news or the national news. And they think like, it's just Russian bots boosting Trump. And I'm like, you know, it's across, it's across a lot of subjects. It's, it's sometimes just to sow chaos or to exacerbate divisions. I just want you to take a moment and and understand that emotional response you feel to this tweet is uh could be the product of manipulation right and i just i think that's been a sobering um aspect for them to to contend with yeah and i think the more that the overall environment becomes polarized, um, this will become increasingly difficult because people are finding, it seems that people are finding it difficult to even understand how others have a different perspective or Mm -hmm. worldview. And that kind of could lead to more isolation in terms of camps. Yes. I think Um, you talk about echo chambers and, and bubble filters in your chapter. Yeah, mostly in the context that um, these communities where people are getting information tend to be, you know, more like minded people among Mm -hmm. them. Um, And then that's easier to to put that, you know, provocative content into there because it will be well received. You know that it will be already. Right. A lot a lot of this content that we've been talking about is organic, organically created, not paid or or boosted. So I'd like to turn the tables a little bit and get your thoughts on Twitter banning 
um, political advertising. What do you think about that? Uh, what is political? Um, uh, they're banning all advertisements <laughs> for for politics elections. So that's my answer: <laughs> is that it's extremely difficult to create these categories and then enforce mm-hmm. against it. Um, I I'm not sure that. First of all, I'm not sure that that trying to deal with this problem at a content level will lead to anything good um, because it doesn't actually prepare people for living in an information or coping with bad information. Right. And then also what is good from bad information and who determines that and, and how do we decide? Um, I do think that there needs to be a review around political advertising and political communications, particularly around elections. So for example, in Canada, we have, uh, we'd had new legislation not long ago that prevented third parties from buying advertising three months before the election. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this is that pages like North 99 and Ontario proud have built up followers of into the hundreds of thousands and, could be, in principle, posting that content for free um, without paying for advertising. Right. Right. Now, that falls into a gray area in between that raises a lot of questions. But where is the general discussion in society about what is acceptable or not? And how do you then force legislators to change their behavior? Because the sad truth of the matter is that most politicians benefit from being able to run influence operations and using third party groups and also behavioral advertising such that I think they will have little interest to police this if it comes down to policing their own support. Yes. Yes. This was, uh, the, one of the more, um, stark realities I think brought up by Sir Julian King in the EU when he was saying if the manipulations and the influence operations lead to a certain crop of politicians winning, it becomes kind of a self-reinforcing cycle because what incentive do they have to do to crack down on the things that might have helped them get elected, which is a scary proposition. That's right. And where are the lines in the sand in terms of what's right and wrong? I mean, right now I see a lot of very difficult policy questions that remain unanswered. Mm -hmm. Um, We've touched on a few of them, right? Like what's the difference between foreign and domestic in an interconnected age? Do diaspora have the right to influence politics in the countries where they came from? Um, What's, stands as a legitimate community, who is an acceptable voice in public debate, right? And how are they positioned and does that matter? What's an acceptable level of persuasion? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when does a government or a tech company disclose evidence of activity during a key democratic event? There's more questions, I think, than answers for our kind of changing information space. Yes, those are huge questions. So how do we work towards a practical solution? (laughs) I think there'll probably have to be many practical solutions. Um, I do think that there needs to be better coordination for the general community that's got some responsibility for dealing with this. I mean, we can't leave tech companies alone to decide where the lines in the sand are. I think that's a slippery slope and dangerous. Um, Government, obviously, there needs to be some pressure put on government that we want reforms um, to be able to deal with this. And that doesn't necessarily mean instantly coming out with legislation to regulate the tech companies, this needs to be thought through and where these lines are, right? That also requires the expert community and civil society. So where is the coordination to bring them together in order to work through some of those problems in a less challenged way than we currently have? Because Mm -hmm. the communities I just mentioned tend not to trust each other right now. 
um, and add to this media. Um, there seems to be little trust between these different groups. So how do we build trust? Um, at an individual level, I think we kind of need to face up to the fact that we're surrounded by propaganda and persuasion. Influence, for better or worse, is rooted in most of the information we're exposed to on a daily basis, from advertising to political communications. So I guess the best sort of analogy for what could be done is to develop a sort of mindfulness or an ongoing awareness for that fact. Again, when we come into contact with this kind of content, we really need to be asking ourselves what the aim of it is and who's behind it. And maybe if this becomes our de facto position, when we engage with information, we might be able to develop some coping mechanisms. I think practically speaking at a personal level, looking to cognitive behavioral therapy and approaches there might be the, the most positive or potential route for finding an answer. Yeah, I think we could have contended that the answer is not coming from one arena, whether it's policy regulation, but you know, it's a full society effort, including, oh, yeah. you know, just teaching starting in kindergarten, you know, just like, let's really hone those critical thinking skills and, and, um, yes. you know, which has largely disappeared, but I think there are lessons to be learned from, um, the Baltic countries and a lot of countries that have lived long-term with, um, then Soviet now Russian information operations as to how to how to spot certain things that just feel wrong, like how to get that that gut instinct and that skepticism up a little bit. I yes, uh, I think it's sometimes a challenge to draw from those countries, especially if they are very um, homogenous, right? So yes, if indeed. they have yeah, they have a language that's difficult to crack, like Finnish. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, when it comes to Finland, it was mostly domestic actors who had been the ones harassing um, harassing journalists. Now, they managed to find laws that they could use uh, in terms of prosecuting the abuse that was being sustained that allowed them to do more than, say, is happening in the U.S. for coping with it. Um, but I do that agree is a, with you. Yes, that is an excellent point. Yeah, because, I mean, tackling it as like a Finnish society is very different than uh, 350 million racially, historically diverse society. I mean, that's also what makes us so vulnerable. Yes. And, and it's also those underlying factors that have been dividing society for so long that make it make the U.S. more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, but you see, like Finland also being a small country was able to overhaul its education system, which is something we clearly badly need in North America. <laughs> right. But yeah, done whether at a national or a state level. It's just like, yeah. the, yes, the political dynamics are, are quite different. Yeah, but that's definitely what needs to happen. Right. And it, and it can't just happen at the at the youth level. I mean, if you look at the stats of when people graduated high school in North America, nearly 50 percent graduated before the web was invented. I mean, mm -hmm. I still question how much they can really understand for how the Internet works, much less like Web 2.0 and social media and how it can be manipulated. And yet um, these people are on social networks, uh, receiving other texts and some messengers all day, every day. And um, I think there's very little understanding for for that. I mean, what we really seem to need <laughs> is almost like the equivalent of health campaigns or seatbelt wearing campaigns. Mm -hmm. Um, to start to educate a wider population for what it means. And these things have to be done in such a way that they're not insulting people or telling them that they're brainwashed. This is also a problem. Right. Yes, that, that's a good point, too. Um, all right. So as as we uh, wind down the interview, I wanted to turn to 
dare I say a hardware question, but hopefully it's it's not too far afield from what you've been studying, um, which is a lot of what we have heard in terms of uh, foreboding or the, the doomsday prophecies of 5G um, has to do about devices and bandwidth. For example, we had Miko Hyponen talking about, you know, they don't want your smart toaster. They want the network behind your smart toaster. Um, and, you know, we have the debate about Huawei as a security, a national security issue. Um, but do you see any implications or have your peers talked about the implications of 5G technology in its effects on a on an already volatile information space? If, if you think about how quickly things spread now, given the bandwidth and volume of 5G, you know, botnets grow ex- exponentially. Uh, the speed of video grows dramatically. Have you have, have you seen any conversations among your peers said about that? Uh, not that I have noticed. Um, I mean, you've already touched on the fact that I think a lot of the issue going forward will become about who has built and still owns the underlying technology driving information communication technologies. And that's a very politically charged mm-hmm. topic internationally. Um, in general, I have to, I I tend to be a little bit cautious in terms of getting very afraid of what comes next. Um, This isn't something that's new. I mean, every time there's been a new technology that changes the way that we uh, deal with or experience information, there tends to be a bit of a panic and a backlash about it. And um, it's not the first time that we fear that we've been inundated with fake news and bad information that happened when the printing press came about. Um, So there tends to be with every new technology, a bit of a panic that immediately follows, particularly about how it changes this experience with information. Undoubtedly with 5g, there's going to be more of the same, right? Like Mm -hmm. we will fear what follows that as well. Um, And maybe if we were to tackle those changes, if we remembered that this is this fear, this pattern is it's just something that we always go through as humans when it comes to new technology. We don't really need to panic, but maybe we can learn from what's happened in the past as we move forward. Indeed. And and panic is not really conducive to like really great policymaking. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I think that's actually where we sit right now. We sit in a very panicked, polarized environment that is um, trying to deal with a problem that I would argue is as well understood as medicine was in the Middle Ages, right? We used to think that somebody gave you the evil eye and that made you sick. Well, now we believe that if you sprinkle a little bit of manipulated information on something, it's going to sway an election. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is we need to get back to like information leeches, Seem to like stick <laughs> I think that's actually what some of the legislation might already be. There you go. Just just suck some of that poison out of the system. Just gonna be, yeah. Everyone's going to be healthy after that. Body politic will be robust. Just let a little blood here on this content. We don't want that scene anymore. And that'll fix the humors. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking the time uh, out of your afternoon and um, we wish you the best of luck in your continued studies and, and hope to hear more from you. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Wow. What an exciting conversation to have. Yeah. I think it was illuminating how 
squishy the boundaries still are in terms of how to name these things. I mean, I know I tried to pin Alicia down on some definitives and the fact that she wasn't speaks to her credibility as an academic, that there's just not um, a lot of binary options here. Right. Um, so an expert in the in the gray space. Um, okay, so news that we are following this week. Um, at the tail end of last week, you may have missed it, but LinkedIn came out with their annual transparency report. And what stuck out to us was the elimination of nearly 21 million fake accounts. That's a lot of accounts. How do you think that plays out in terms of the grand scheme of all accounts out there? Well, I well LinkedIn for their part were, was trying to illustrate how their um, AI was able to stop those at the level of registration. So before they got out into the wild, but you know we know from our own clients that a lot of fake accounts or at least impersonations are still getting through uh, because we stop them uh, or we detect them. So how that plays out, I'm not quite sure whether those individuals were mostly trying to set up scams or if there were sort of more nefarious counterintelligence activities going on. I think that's too, the data is not in on that yet. Well, remember guys, just be careful before you accept a connection. That's right. Um, know who your friends are. Um, as ever, we are thankful to Abby Bruce for sound design and production and Matias Cefaletti for our theme music. Um, we are signing off this week. We will be back mid-December for the last show of the year. Um, and then we'll be taking a little break uh, given the holidays, but we will be back in 2020 with a new format and better than ever. Until then, stay safe, y'all. This is Zero Hour, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>